important to understand why we sing, what we sing, where we sing, how we sing, the words we sing. I am Candace Dixon, the director of Why We Sing at United Christian Faith Ministries, and I am excited today to have with me poet, teaching artist, essayist, and community activist from Baton Rouge, but currently living in Washington, D.C., the incredibly talented Donnie Rose. Welcome, hey, Donnie. Candace, thank you for having me. And quick correction, I actually live in Bowie, Maryland, which is about 30 minutes from D.C., uh, I do work in D.C., so, you know, I only want to say that because, like, when I tell people up here I'm from Louisiana, they're like, New Orleans? I'm like, no, Baton Rouge. <laughs> exactly, right? So you got to you gotta correct people on both ends. So yeah, if yeah. it's Baton Rouge and not New Orleans and Louisiana, then it needs to be Bowie, Maryland, and not Washington, D.C. over there. So I get it. All good. I understand. But I want to just say a little bit about you. So Donnie has worked extensively in the realm of creative arts. In 2019, he produced the American Audit, a multimedia spoken word poetry production chronicling 400 years of Black American life. He's hosted many conferences and events, one of them being Black Out Loud conference that was centered around Black visibility in the arts, media, and activism. And he has many honors and awards. My own Leaks chapter honored you in 2019 as a Louisiana role model. And in 2019, you were honored as a Kennedy Center Citizen Artist Fellow, recognized as someone who uses his art for positive impact in his community and lives up to the ideals of service, justice, freedom, courage, and gratitude that are inspired by President John Kennedy's legacy. Mm -hmm. There's so much I could say about you. And there's so much I could say about the legacy that I feel like that you have and the impact you've had on the Baton Rouge community when it comes to the arts. Mm -hmm. But what I really want to get into is the series of articles that you wrote uh, for Black Music Month entitled We Told the Mountain. Can you tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about that? Yeah, so for the past couple of years, I've been looking to, well, first let me back up and say, uh, for those who don't know, uh, June is officially recognized as Black Music Month or African American Music Month. That designation came from President Jimmy Carter back in 1979. And so it's pretty much a, a period in which uh, black music is uplifted and amplified. And, you know, we talk about the songs, the songwriters, uh, the musicians, et cetera, et cetera. So it's kind of like a, a specific emphasis. So for the last few years, I had been kind of challenging myself to do various writing projects around um, during Black Music Month. Uh, like a couple of years ago, I had a series called Gone Jig Then, which was like, specifically in dedication to Baton Rouge uh, rap, uh, a genre called jig music. Um, a couple of other things where I dabbled in, but for this particular year, I'm working on, I'm currently working on a project called Rhyme Travel, uh, which is in celebration of the 50 year hip hop, of an, uh, 50 year anniversary of hip hop. But for me, um, my mind often kind of drifts. And so as I've been working on Rhyme Travel, I was like, I want to go on a side mission for Black Music Month. And so the side mission became uh, We Told a Mountain. And We Told a Mountain is in response to the um, the, the very well-known gospel song, Go Tell It on the Mountain. And the idea behind We Told a Mountain was to write uh, 
a series of essays and poems that basically spoke to the uh, everlasting power of gospel music as it pertains to uh, Black musicianship, uh, Black community, Black arts. And so what we know is that um, historically, one of the first forms of art and music that Black folks contributed to this country was gospel music. Um, blues came secondary, but definitely gospel music. And so even when we think about you know, other forms of music, whether we're talking R&B, whether we're talking hip hop, whether we're talking rock, soul, jazz, there are often sprinklings of gospel that can be found in pretty much any other genre of music, particularly uh, created by black musicians. And so I kind of wanted to lean into just that idea and really kind of write from a perspective of how I personally was um, shaped and influenced by gospel music. As someone that grew up um, in a black church, uh, shouts out to the Mount Pilgrim Missionary Baptist Church in Baton Rouge, where I came of age. Uh, I sang in the junior choir and the young adult choir. And my mother was a member of the mass choir. And my aunt was a member of the mass choir. And so like, for me, foundationally, before I was performing spoken word anywhere, the first stage I ever took was being in the choir at Mount Pilgrim Baptist Church. And so I really kind of want to, I think, for this project, this series of writing during Black Music Month, lead in, lean into my own personal foundation and do a little, little bit of interrogation of self, if you will, um, while working on this larger project about the 50-year anniversary of hip-hop. And so... I, I wrote a piece every week. Uh, I what what I previously did with other Black Music Month uh, series where I kind of failed was I was overzealous in trying to like I'm going to write a piece or write something every day or every other day. And this time I was like, let's be realistic. You know what I mean? Um, working full time to start a, you know a great job about a month a month and a half ago, and I was like, you know, what is the probability of me writing? three times a week. It's probably not going to be that high for this project. So let me set a realistic goal of generating one piece per week. And so that's what I did over the course of uh, the month of June, four pieces, uh, one piece per week uh, for the We Told the Mountain series. And it, it really just kind of turned out to be some very, uh, again, self-exploration type writing. It was some liberating writing. I said some things I hadn't said in a long time. Um, well, when I said I wrote some things, I hadn't thought about in a long time. And um, I put some language out into the atmosphere that I felt was really um, re re releasing for me to write. So mm -hmm. yeah, that's about that's about the, the gist of it. Well, one article that you wrote was um, the hip hop Holy Ghost is really the only one I've ever known. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I enjoyed reading that. So what was the inspiration behind that? Uh, Killer Mike, the rapper Killer Mike, uh, put out a new album called Michael about a month ago. And um, the album is incredible. You know, so it's like the, uh, for me, it's the best rap album that has come out this year. And it'll probably be one of the best rap albums that have come out in recent years, period. Um, and so there's a song, like the whole album, you know, is, is really, there's a lot of spiritual, heavy spiritual undertone in the midst of what may be considered like 
you know, secular messenger, right? But um, probably the song on the album that really, I think, was an inspiration to that particular piece is the second song. It's called uh, Shed Tears. And so uh, on Shed Tears, uh, Killer Mike is basically talking about wrestling with pretty much the crossroads of like his secular self and his uh, saint self, right? His self that was brought up in the church and reared by his grandmother and reared, you know, by, you know, elders that were like giving him this kind of religious foundation and the, the, the dope boy that he would ultimately become and the trapper he would ultimately become. And, you know, also being someone that was educated at Morehouse College. So there's a lot of nuances to his personhood and on Shed Tears, He's really talking about, you know, getting up, you know, in the morning and essentially not necessarily having a daily breakdown, but like having a daily cleansing when even thinking about, you know, this is who I am and all the multitudes of my personhood. And, you know, whenever whenever I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, I guess, find my way back to myself, there's a point where, you know, the, the, the tears get to flow, right? So the thing about that particular record is um, on the song, on the chorus, um, the vocalist, I can't remember her name. Lena Bird. Lena Bird, yeah. Mm -hmm. So Lena Bird is singing like rest, uh, rest for your soul. I'm here to, I'm here to you know, give you rest. She's singing in the voice of God, right? Uh, granting rest for your soul. And for me, that was just so resonant because it's like, you know, this whole idea of you being out in the world and you're trying to make advancements in whatever way you can, you're trying to, you know, succeed or level up, whatever it is you want to call it, but also struggling with the concept of your spirit being at rest. You know what I mean? Of just being comfortable in your own skin and in your own personhood and hoping that you don't have to like face a physical death before you really get rest before your spirit really is at rest. And so that was just super resonant for me. Um, and it kind of was the anchor for the piece. But the larger, I think the larger kind of thing that I was saying is that what I couldn't remember in thinking back to like the, the my, my early childhood was what music uh, I was exposed to first. Was it hip hop music or was it gospel? Or did they both come at the same time? because I can distinctly remember going to church and singing in the junior choir and singing Jesus on the main line. About around the same time, I could also distinctly remember my older brothers playing Run DMC and Too Short, right? So it's this idea of like, what was, you know, what did I really like come into contact with first? Um, and I also kind of talk about how um, there was definitely a period in my life where, you know, those roads kind of diverged and I continued in the pathway of, you know, hip hop arts and spoken word and, and being engaged with hip hop culture and not so much with church. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but I, but I think what it was and what I was kind of getting at is that, you know, through that killer Mike album and through like various other examples of hip hop, I've often found spiritual undertones. So there's always been this kind of connecting thread, even when I was not in a sanctuary clapping my hands or in a choir room. Like there was always like this kind of through hip hop, this 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 calling point back, 
right? And I think that, you know, when people think about rap music, you know, of course, uh, the, the ideas from a secular lens, of course, you know, there's, there's messages of violence and misogyny and nihilism and, and, and a lot of these things. But, you know, with Killer Mike's album, just like with a lot of albums that, you know, a lot of my favorite MCs have put out, like a lot of a lot of them grew up as black boys who at one point or another, grandmother and mother, somebody was like dragging them into a church, you know what I mean? And sitting them down and they were participating in prayer time or they were, you know, uh, maybe maybe they were members of a choir or maybe they just only went on Easter. But like so much of the foundation of who so many black people are is rooted in some level of exposure to church or religion at some point. And so even if you are someone that is kind of out in the world doing worldly things or making worldly art, if there was, if your foundation was at any point rooted in something, you know, uh, spiritual, it often finds its way back. And, you know, I think I said in the piece that, you know, I've known what it is to find uh, holiness in unholy situations. And kind of what I mean by that is, you know, um, for me, the idea of, you know, experiencing uh, something of a higher power is like when I'm feeling at my absolute uh, utmost peace. And sometimes that peace may come in what may be deemed a secular environment, <laughs> you know, or in an environment that one may not uh, tie to piety or religion. And, you know, like I, the, the, the little points where I've been like, yeah, this feels godly, even in the midst of what seems like ungodly settings or activity or whatever case may be. And so it's kind of it's kind of complicated to explain, but um, but yeah, you know, I think kind of the core when I'm talking about the, the title uh, about always knowing hip hop holy ghost is this idea of having a an energy hit when you know I'm experiencing this moment of joy or peace, or when I'm experiencing moments of you know having to wrestle with whatever is going on in my life that feels all too consuming. And mm -hmm. so when I was listening to the Killer Mike record, particularly the song Share Tears, like I felt myself, um, you know, buckling based on some things that he was saying on the song, right? And so for me, that was like a, also a spiritual voice speaking to me, like through that record, like, hey, um, you got some things that you need to possibly do an about face for yourself and to reconcile with. So that's kind of where all that came from. Yeah. So one thing I love about Shed Tears is that kind of um, merging of hip hop and gospel. And you, you know, you definitely hear it. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes it's harder to pick up on um, in some things than others. But in that song, 
you definitely pick up on the gospel. Yeah. Um, being a bird, you know, singing is just, is, is absolutely gospel, right? Yeah, yeah. And then, um, and then the hip hop and him, you know, rapping those lyrics is just, it's an amazing merger of, of the two. It, it definitely is. Um, I enjoyed, you know, thoroughly enjoyed listening to it. Um, and it's just the, what's the word? It's the, uh, ex- it, there's an excitement about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's like you are, for me, it took me back to being in moments of church where somebody was doing a dynamic solo and then people are up and they're screaming, right? And like this, 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 this Holy Ghost or this Holy Spirit, whatever you want to call it, like this, this spiritual awakening is happening in real time. Mm-hmm. And so like, uh, a lot of that is based around how that song is sonically arranged, right? So you have, when you get to the chorus and Lena Bird is like, well, rest for you, and like the choir is like amplified, it feels like it's shaking through your device, your your car, whatever it is that you're listening, it feels like it's grabbing a hold of you, right? And then as Mike, uh, Killer Mike is rapping and also got Mozzie on there, but particularly as Killer Mike is rapping, when he gets to the second part, he's like, you know, I shed tears every morning in the bathroom, mid face to face. It was me. That's the reason that I feel like you you literally hear the tension in his voice, right? Mm-hmm. As if you are in church and there's an altar call and someone is called up to the altar to essentially give a testimony, right? There's so a vulnerability about it. Yeah. Exactly. So that that that's at least that's what I felt like I was experiencing from listening to it. And I think that that's where that kind of merger that you talk about really like uh, takes place. Yeah, definitely. Now there's a lot of conversation just about um, kind of the church kind of getting back to, or maybe I should say there's a lot of conversation about the church kind of stepping away more from tradition. Right. Mm -hmm. And I felt like in some of your, you know, what I was reading, I could pull out little pieces of the traditional part of church and you not necessarily resonating with that, but the hip hop and, you know, you, you resonated with. And so what I want to kind of ask you about is, so D1 recently did a interview and he was talking about the difference between these artists glorifying Mm-hmm. a lifestyle yeah. versus just um kind of testifying or talking about them in their work right yeah. mm-hmm. and i just thought that was so profound how he really got uh into the difference and yeah. what it really means to glorify yeah. this past lifestyle that you lived versus just rapping about it and telling a story about it in your music what did you think about that so i didn't really um i didn't really see D1's full interview, but I have, uh, so the project I mentioned earlier, Rhyme Travel, I actually interviewed D1 for that, and I've known him for the past, I've known D1 almost 20 years. Uh, No, I've known him for a while. Uh, Good friend of mine, um, I was once kind of almost something of a a mentor to him. So I know, I know his ideology around it. And, you know, I think that, I think that he's on to something, you know, I will I will get into a little bit that is somewhat I don't want to say because it's not is is actually not conspiracy somewhat theoretical, but let me let me let me let me say this. So um, there are record label owners 
that do have stock in private prisons. And the reason why it is of note to mention that is because it has been suggested for the last 25 to 30 years, particularly with hip hop music, that some of the messaging that is promoted, that is really like amplified, the intent is to kind of serve as almost some level of subliminal messaging, right? So whether you're talking about criminality, whether you're talking about violence, whether you're talking about just being uh, socially or morally negligent, the idea is like, if I own stock in private prison, and if I'm also promoting music as a record exec that may influence some level of criminality, there's a win-win, right? Because if people if people are feeling like the music is creating a level of influence for them to do crime and then they go to prison, well then I'm also you know profiting in, in that way, right? So again, that is that is theory mixed with like some actual like real stuff. Like it really is a thing that their record execs to have uh stop in private prison. And so the connection may feel like a reach, but there there is there is there's also kind of proof of that manifesting that way. Mm -hmm. um, and so the point of me even bringing that up is that, yeah, uh, there are some folks who are paid and paid well, you know, as far as artists and entertainers to really glorify um, a particular, you know, way of a particular lifestyle of, you know, either criminality or, you know, abject immorality, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, they, you know, are, are pushed to the top of the charts. They are, you know, uh, their music is fed to radio programmers. They, you know, they really have an elevated platform. And so we don't know if that is also in tandem with the fact that the people who are behind them uh, have investment in, you know, private prisons, right? Um, but the other side of the coin is that, yes, you do, hip hop has always had a narrative to it where folks were like, let me tell you what I went through so that you can avoid, you know, these particular uh, mistakes or these pathways. And so, yes, there absolutely is a distinction between folks just saying, I'm going to tell you how many people I shot or how much dope I sold. Um, even if it's fictional, because the other thing is like 99% of these things that we hear in rap music are um, they're second or third person accounts. Like they're not first person account, right? Um, it is like my homeboy did this or my cousin did this. I may have been out there with them, but I really didn't do any of that, right? So we got to put we got to put that in, in, its, in its proper context. Um, but the other, you know, the, the, the other point is that the other side of that is you will have folks, you know, um, rappers like Scarface, rappers like Jeezy, rappers like Jay-Z, who have often like had autobiographical music that pretty much said, these are the things that I was involved in. These are the perils that I narrowly escaped. Now that I escaped them, I'm letting you know this is what that game leads to, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not necessarily saying that you should do this, I'm not necessarily saying that you shouldn't do it, but if you listen between the lines, what you will hear is stories of escapism. Maybe mm. narrowly, maybe narrowly, but this is what happened, right? 
this was the scene, these were the characters, this was the setting, this was this is what I was involved in. I'm now here to tell you this on record, but it almost didn't end that way, right? Um, you know, so you take somebody like Jay-Z, who is arguably the most successful rapper, you know, of all time. And the other day in Brooklyn, uh, the Brooklyn Public Library has a uh, exhibition called The Book of Hope, right? And so if you go to the Brooklyn Public Library, anytime from now through fall, outside of the library, there are literally Jay-Z lyrics like that are printed on the building, like all in front of the building, right? You go into the library, there's this expansive exhibit of photos of Jay-Z, of album paraphernalia, all of this kind of stuff, right? And it is all really driven around this narrative of, I survived this perilous way of street living, drug dealing, whatever violence that came along with that. But I'm here to tell you the story, not necessarily from a perspective of you go out and do that. Like he, he has a famous line where he's like, Hove did that. So hopefully you wouldn't have to go through that. Right. Um, and I think that when we talk about that and maybe what D1 was kind of talking about is like there's, there's something of a generational divide between a lot of rappers that came of age when we were younger that gave you these narratives from a perspective of I'm just letting you know what it is versus what a lot now is like i'm going to be as uh I'm, I'm going to talk as immoral as i possibly can from the perspective of i'm actively doing this thing and i want you to join me right um there are some who believe that what that comes from to a certain extent is that whereas folks of our generation may have grown up where a lot of the rappers were the drug dealers quote unquote um, we're now in an era where a lot of the rappers are, are products of that time and they're the drug users. And so like, there's even this kind of dichotomy between the messaging of someone that was like, I did this as a means of survival. Now I move and then I took it and I made, uh, I made my talent my main thing. And now that's not my thing versus someone being like, uh, I'm just kind of in the throes of addiction and I want you all to celebrate that with me. And I want you to join join me in my 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 dangerous uh, way of living, right? Mm-hmm. And so you know, I'm 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 often mindful of just even how I talk about that because I don't want to like come across as like the old head. It's like, you know, back in my day, we didn't you know our music didn't do thus and such because a lot of in a lot of ways it absolutely did, right? <laughs> but the, the we we have seen. A, I think something of a continual descend uh, as far as people's content. And again, you know, like just like I mentioned that there are record execs to have investment in private prisons, there's also record execs to have investment in the pharmaceutical issue, uh, industry. And mm-hmm. so, what that means is that if you have someone that is promoting their addiction to Percocet, for example, then there's also a benefit to that record exec who may have a small investment in the pharmaceutical industry, having a generation of kids now addicted to a substance that they can get their hands on. Mm-hmm. So uh, that may have like went in a couple of different directions of what you asked, but- No, 
Yeah, no, that was great. That touched on a lot. I I want to ask you though, why do you think music is so powerful that it influences people so much, and that why why don't we recognize that influence too that it has on us, but we see other people recognizing it and profiting from it? I think that you know um, so much is you know, and I talk to the students who I teach uh, this. So much is the idea of sensory detail, right? Uh, when we talk about the sense of sound, when we talk about the sense of sight uh, in particular, right? And so what generally happens is that the first thing that we really listen to is the production or the musicality behind any song, right? We are entranced by the beat. We're entranced by the rhythm where, you know, and particularly as black folks or whatever, like the drum is at the origin of who we are as people, right? Mm -hmm. It does something just, it does something to our spirit. We are just drawn into like rhythm, right? And so initially, you know, when we hear a song, we're like, oh, I really like how those hi-hats are hitting. Or I really like how that bass line is hitting. Or I really like how this is being synthesized. And before you know it, the next thing that comes in, the lyrics, the content, the messaging, we may have already been so enthralled by the music that by the time the lyrics come around, it's just kind of like repetitive, right? So we're just saying, you know, we're just saying things like over and over and over and over. And we're marrying it with this, with this, with this production, with this musicality. And before you know it, it has kind of seeped into our subconscious, right? Mm -hmm. So if the beat is catchy, but I keep saying, and I'm a killer, and I'm a killer, and I'm a killer, right? It is, it is merging itself into our psyche without us even necessarily knowing that it's happening. Um, I think that, you know, for people like myself and a lot of folks that, uh, you know, are, are practicing writers or, you know, poets or, or MCs or whatever like that, we are wired to be word people. And so we're, we're often very cognizant of like language, mm -hmm. but, you know, and I, I don't say this from a high and mighty place, but a lot of folks that consume music, there's not always a hyper awareness of language. Like it's there's the awareness to where you know you may learn lyrics and then you can spit them back, but there's not always this like, hmm, let me think about what I'm digesting right now, right? Because again, um, if the music is slapping, if if the beat is, is coming through right. If the production, if the keys, if the, you know, whatever, you know, if the 808, if the if the uh, auto tune, whatever's being used, if it's marrying itself just right, I can almost say anything to that, and subconsciously, it can end up seeping into the brain of whoever is listening, and then if you take a track, and that track is heavily promoted. And it's put, you know, in radio rotation. And if it's putting at the, if it's put at the at the top of streaming services, if it's put, you know, snippets and commercials, then before you know it, like I've been conditioned to take the word, take that word as law, right? Yeah. So if it's, if I'm seeing it, if if it is so ubiquitous, if it's all around me, right? And again, the music is hitting just right, and and I just kind of like almost been hypnotized to the, to the lyrics. And I'm like, okay, this is great. 
And so I'm just saying it and I'm sharing it, you know what I mean? And I'm telling everybody, you should check this out. Or, you know, um, I was on a field trip yesterday with some young people in a summer program that I, that, uh, I, I direct. And, uh, there was a bunch of uh, teenage girls that were singing like some very uh, sexually explicit music, right? New music, right? Um, I didn't, I tried not to be too whatever about it because I, you know, I grew up in the era of like Lil Kim, Foxy Brown, et cetera, et cetera. So you know, I can't be the guy again to be like, "What you all are doing now is blah blah blah," because that's low key hypocritical. But yeah. as a, as an adult. As a 42-year-old adult sitting on a school bus on a field trip, listening to those teenage girls rap and sing extremely explicit lyrics, I think it hit me in a different way of like, I know that they know, like they know what they're singing and what they're rapping, but at the same time, it's been so inundated, it's been so heard that it's just like they, they're spitting these lyrics out easily. It's so programmable, uh, programmable right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think that I think that what often happens is that we don't, we just as in people, human beings, we don't always recognize where any form of entertainment, whether we're talking music, television, uh, movies, et cetera, where it does impact our psyche. We're just mm-hmm. like, I'm watching this, I'm listening to this, I think it's cool, right? But um, it is said that repetition is the father of learning, which means that if I continuously listen to a thing or continuously watch a thing, then I'm, I'm also learning new behaviors, right? Mm-hmm. And if I'm continuously being fed a particular message, whether it's a message of degradation, a message of violence, a message of nihilism, a message of uh, sexual exploitation, a message of you know that promotes rape culture, whatever the case may be, I'm learning. <laughs> I'm learning a particular ideology because I'm repetitiously listening to that over and over and over and over and over, right? And if I'm not taking a step back and saying, you know what, I like this, but I don't agree with it, you know what I mean? Then I'm gonna be infected, really, for lack of better words, right? Um, a lot of a lot of, a lot of folks don't engage with entertainment from a discerning place. We just take it at, at face value. And before mm-hmm. we know it, we are repetitively, you know, learning these ideals that may not even align with who we are as people, right? Mm-hmm. You know, who we are as individuals, you know what I'm saying? But it's like the beat slap, or you know what I mean, or the lyrics are catchy, or you know, the production, you know hits us in a particular way and before you know it, this is what we're kind of programmed to like just digest. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. I do think though that, so some of what you talked about in one of the articles for Black Music Month um, had to do with kind of, you know, the hip hop resonating with you a whole lot more than that uh, church music was. Mm -hmm. But I do believe that the church is being more intentional about embracing um, hip hop and allowing our youth to like explore rap and other things, but from a, you know, from a Christian perspective. And so I love how, you know, things are going in that perspective, because like you talk about the musicality and the beat and all that, if we can do that 
it's you know and create that music that is more positive mm-hmm. and control that narrative a little bit more when it comes to music i feel like we can really impact people in a positive way versus how the music impacts people in a negative way yeah yeah i mean you know you like christian rappers have been a thing for quite some time you know mm-hmm. what i mean you mentioned d1 earlier you know you got acts like lecrae you know, there's a, num- there's a number of, of folks. And I think that for for a period of time, particularly in the 80s and the 90s, more or less at the inception of, of hip hop, it was looked at by the church as such like devilment, right? It was like the antithesis of all things pure and holy and moral. And what was happening was that while the church was vilifying rap music, literally, you know, the late Reverend Calvin Butts steamrolling over Snoop Dogg CDs in 93, like that was, you know, a thing. Um, and other, you know, you know, high profile clergy folks being like, this is the devil's music, do away with it. While that was happening, concurrently, rap music was raising a generation, mm-hmm. right? So what happens is, you know, if you got this music that the church was vilifying, also raising a generation, and by that I mean, you know, providing you know ideology, providing you know um, a way a, a way out of criminality, providing you know financial uh, resources, providing you know uh, a platform for talent, raising a generation in all those various capacities. What did that generation did, didn't do? Oh, well, if the church is anti this then I'm anti the church, right? Mm -hmm. Because I may get to church once a week, but I'm engaging with this seven days a week, right? And through this, I'm seeing people that look like me and people who look like people in my community becoming millionaires, being able to express themselves, um, having their their, their thoughts uh, embraced and put on national television and on radio, blah, blah, blah. And so I think the church, to a large extent, had to do an about face. Mm-hmm. It had to say to itself, if we don't want to lose a whole generation, we need to be a little bit more um, embracing of like at least the essence of what this art form is. Mm-hmm. It does not mean that we have to agree with all of the messaging or the ideology but we cannot act like it does not have an influence. Mm-hmm. So I do remember, I distinctly remember the point in which, you know, uh, maybe choirs were kind of like, you know, putting a little bit more, you know, hip hop into it. And, and you know, we got to give a huge shout out to uh, like the pioneer, Kirk Franklin, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and his work in bridging that gap, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I've heard him talk about this before. It was a thing that he, he recognized um, kind of what I was mentioning, you know, he recognized it a while back that if we, as in people who were in the church, completely ignored hip hop culture or ignored hip hop as an art form and just kind of stayed on the side of vilifying, of shunning, of demonizing, that a whole generation would be like, okay, if that's how y'all feel about our culture and our art that was, you know, derived of conditions that you all did not necessarily help us avoid, then we out. Mm -hmm. Peace out, Rev. You know what I mean? 
Yeah. I'm going to go to this concert. I'm going to yeah. go to the cypher. I'm going to go get in the studio, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think the church, you know, had to come to terms with that and had to say, we can embrace um, the core of this culture, but do so do so in a way that is magnifying uh, righteousness. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, yeah, I, I think that if, if that if that if that curse if that course, excuse me, was never reversed, it would be a hard time for a lot of folks trying to engage with you know uh, millennial folks and Gen Z folks who you know studies have shown that over the past maybe half century, but definitely over the past thirty years, uh, black folks, particularly black folks who categorize as millennial and Gen Z are going to church at a much lesser rate than mm-hmm. both, you know, Gen X and before. Mm-hmm. So if you are completely ignoring um, what is, you know, arguably the biggest, you know, art form and musical genre in the world, because hip hop is, if you're completely ignoring that, then you are making yourself susceptible to losing your audience. Mm-hmm. You know? And I think again, uh, uh, with the vision of folks like Kirk Franklin, you know, maybe Ty Tribbett, a bunch of a bunch of people, mm-hmm. right? yeah, they saw that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then that kind of trickled down to local churches, probably you know, across the country, local black churches that were like, hey, um, we can't just stamp <laughs> the devil seal on all things hip hop and expect to keep younger generations engaged in church mm-hmm. yeah and I, I certainly love how you say we can embrace hip-hop without embracing the the lyrics that may not be you know line up with what we want people yeah. to learn and know from right. a christian standpoint right yeah. and so i think I, I definitely think we're doing a better job of that i was at a conference uh about a month or so ago and I was at a workshop and Rodney Jerkins was talking about how he first, you know, when he was in the church, he started rapping in the church and he would see people, members get up and walk out when he started rapping. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I'm grateful for now is I don't see a lot of that just blanket. I don't want to hear that this isn't right anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. And especially at my church, I feel like there's such we have such a vibrant youth program mm-hmm. that I love that we am like if there's something that the, that the kids are interested in we're very open to their artistic expression, right? And I think that's something that you are just really good at as well, kind of embracing people's artistic expression and mentoring them, right, in the right direction. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, did you want to say something? No, no, go ahead. But my last question, um, you know, my pastor always talks about how, you know, whenever there is civil unrest, whenever there is, you know, things that are happening in our society, things happening in our community, um, even to the point of holidays, you know, there should be a song. Right. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I know, a quote that I know that you know very well by Nina Simone is that an artist's duty is to reflect the, the time. time. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I think you do that very well. Whenever there's anything going on in the world, I feel like you put some kind of prose and poetry out there mm-hmm. for people to consume. Yeah. Why is that so important to you? And does it ever get overwhelming? Um, I'm going to answer the second part of the question first. It definitely does. 
um, get overwhelming. Uh, my memories, uh, you know, our Facebook allows you to see your memories from years uh, back, or if you have the app time hop, you can see like memories. So for the past now seven years, um, memories of 2016 in Baton Rouge show up in my social media. And if I'm looking at it, if I'm looking at it right now, specifically in the month of July, um, from the top of July through August, I'm looking at memories of Alton Sterling being killed in Baton Rouge, the uh, civil unrest that came from that, uh, the police, uh, the ambush of police that happened, uh, the Baton Rouge police. Uh, one of my mentees passed away during that time. And then, like, after that, the, the thousand-year flood, right? Mm-hmm. These memories show up literally every year because I was writing about all that, right? During that time, I'm, I'm, I don't know. It's like I became, like, a bootleg reporter or something, you know <laughs> And I'm writing these posts and all these different things about what's going on. And so just even having that come back, you know, by way of memory is mildly overwhelming, right? Just even looking back and reading threads, you know what I mean? Of like, man, we were going through some hard, hard times. And just reading what people were saying at the time and whatever I was putting out at the time, I was like, wow it's you know of course we're resilient people and so we survive but wow those are like really difficult times and this is before we get to the summer of 2020 in the midst of pandemic and we're talking george floyd and we're talking brianna taylor and we're talking richard brooks and we're talking ahmaud aubrey this is before that right this is when it's in our backyard in baton rouge right so even just yeah uh articulating about those things can be uh overwhelming. I think for me, uh, it wasn't necessarily always my course, right? Um, when I first started doing poetry, spoken word back in like 2099 or whatever, while, while student at Southern, like I was writing about extremely trivial stuff, extremely whimsical stuff. I was, you know, a, a, a young, I guess, aspiring MC that was moonlighting as a poet. You know what I mean? Like I, you know, I was trying to have my get my lyricists on. And so a lot of the, I guess, negative <laughs> attributes of hip hop also spilled over into my poetry. You know what I mean? A lot of my early poetry was misogynistic or it was, you know, um, it wasn't re- it wasn't progressive, right? Um, and so I think as my personal evolution just kind of you know continued, uh I had to I had to grow up, right? Um, but I think that, you know, the, the, maybe the inflection point for me, as it was for a lot of people, you know, in 2012, when, uh, Trayvon Martin was killed by George Zimmerman, and then in 2014, when Michael Brown was killed by the police and Eric Garner was killed by the police, et cetera, et cetera, what happened for me and a lot of black writers and a lot of black poets that I know is that we learned and not necessarily learned, but we had to come, come to terms with, yeah, this whole idea of like post-racial America and black president and, you know, upward mobility for black folks or whatever, it still has not halted centuries of racialized violence, right? And then what we also realized is that all these poems that we were doing at poetry slam tournaments and and open mics and all this stuff that was very, you know, we are the world, blah, blah, blah. They weren't necessarily resonating as complete truth, right? So, I want to say around that time, the inception of the Black Lives Matter movement 
for a lot of writers, a lot of black writers, we went through a hard reset to where we had to like really think about what was happening in the world around us and how we were processing it and what we were telling our audiences and, you know, just what we were saying in general. And so I think, you know, for me, as well as a lot of other of my peers, we all kind of hit that inflection point at the same time. And we felt like, you know, it would be disingenuous to not, as, you know, the great Nina Simone would, would have said, to not be reflecting the times, you know? And so uh, a lot of the things that I began writing about somewhere in the early 2010s, I had been thinking about for years, but maybe I felt like it was not a space where it was quote unquote acceptable, or it wasn't a part of the national conversation, right? Or maybe I thought it would have been a barrier to me advancing in my career as an artist, right? But, you know, we got to a point in the 2010s where it's like, what is advancement if your people are still being killed in the street? Mm. If you're still being victimized by structural racism, if you're still being victimized by systemic inequity, if you have, you know, a black president in office that you know is doing everything that that he's supposed to do from a governmental standpoint, I guess you know. But <laughs> you got a whole nother situation going on at the street level of folks being uh, disenfranchised at mass scale. Some of it resulting in their death, but a lot of it resulting into the slow death of just like uh, poverty and you know addiction and hunger and house you know housing insecurity, right? Like, what does it mean to be an artist ignoring all of those things because you're in, quote unquote, a period of advancement or what some people might have wanted to consider post-racial? And the answer was it didn't mean anything. You know what I mean? So how do you continue to avoid talking about the world outside your window? And that's kind of where I landed with it. You know what I mean? And so from there, I just, you know, a lot of my energy kind of went in that direction and that's just kind of you know been you know what it's been and, and i feel like to some extent that has become what church folks may consider my ministry <laughs> like this idea of speaking a particular truth around issues of race and class you know culture um and particularly things that impact uh the black experience and that's just that's just kind of where I, where I am with it. Um, there could be a point where I pivot to something else, but you know I feel like that is my calling. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And I feel like that is what I'm supposed to be doing with my gift, with whatever talent that I have, um, speaking to you know systemic inequities, speaking about and writing about things that have disenfranchised us across the board, you know what I mean? Uh, I, I'll quickly say this, one of the pieces in We Told the Mountain was about uh, queer voices in the church, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I kind of talked about this idea of growing up um, in a church where the minister of music was people whispered, whispered about their sexuality, right? Um, or there were choir members where people whispered about their sexuality. And these were the same people that the choir and the congregation relied on to make a joyful noise. But folks were having to live in isolation of who they were, 
right? Mm -hmm. So when I'm when, when I'm talking about like this idea of being called upon, or maybe I think my calling to like break down certain, you know, you know, either isms or inequities. I'm not just talking about this larger idea of how we are systemically disenfranchised. I'm also talking about how we often end up disenfranchising each other and how we often make our own lives more difficult for people who look like us because we decide that we can be judge, jury, and jurisdiction over their lives. And so, yeah, um, so much of so much of what my work has kind of grown into has been, I guess, the evolution of my personhood. And yeah, I'm human, and so I say things wrong, I make mistakes. Um, I have not always led young people in the best way. I have not always been the greatest advocate for you know women or LGBTQ plus people, like all of that, right? Um, but it's an idea of continuously trying to learn, relearn, revise, and edit. And so I guess kind of my closing note is that as a writer, one of the primary things that we are that 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 are drilled into any writer's head, any workshop that you've ever done, is the idea of revision, the idea of editing. And so for me, editing also looks like a lifestyle thing. How do I edit my and revise my personhood on a regular basis to be maybe more of an actual example of what would Jesus do? Right? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so yeah uh that's what things have looked like for a minute and it absolutely does get over overwhelming because who likes to sing a song of, of sorrow often right or to even opine about things that are difficult but you know um i find my joy i talk about my joy i crack my jokes i do whatever it is that i need to do but i think that you know at least in this iteration of my life a lot of what I am supposed to be doing is writing certain truths to power, speaking certain truths to power, uh, in 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 efforts of you know trying to stand for uh, the humanity of our folks and particularly of of, of my people. Mm -hmm. Well, I agree. I definitely think that is. Your calling, I think you do it well. We appreciate, you know, that you that you do that because it's not something that everyone can do and everyone is willing to do. So that you are able and willing to do that, I think is something that we need. Um, and I appreciate, you know, the, the everything that I read, you know, that comes from you. I appreciate the events that you put on. I appreciate um, the the mentoring, you know, that you do to help people to um, not only for you to express your art, but to help other people express their art as well and make them comfortable in that. And I love the idea of editing. Yeah. Um, I feel like that is something we all have to do when you become so rigid that it is this way and no other way. <laughs> yeah. Um, sometimes we can we can get uh get a little lost in that and and not leave room for that question, what would Jesus do? You know, yeah, yeah. Jesus love and what grace would he, you know, would, would he give people? I'm sorry, were you about to say no, that? no, I was just about to say, you know, a lot of for a lot of us, you know, the idea of even being inflexible is almost a generational thing, right? Mm -hmm we our parents and our grandparents and 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 our great-grandparents had to endure a lot of hardships and so in, in enduring a lot of hardships a lot of rigid structuring came from that like 
we need to like live our lives this particular way, chart these particular paths, because anything to the contrary could be dangerous, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of our originness came from a place of uh, trying to preserve safety, right? Yeah. Um, and so when we even think about the idea of allowing for grace, allowing for flexibility, honoring someone's uh, humanity, that kind of takes us outside to some ex outside of some of the rigidness that may have initially been necessary for survival, right? Mm -hmm. But now, you know, we're in the 21st century, it is 2023. We talk about black people in particular, we're talking about black folks that come from the variety all across the spectrum, whether we're talking uh, religion, whether we're talking orientation, whether we're talking gender, uh, gender presentation, whether we're talking class, whether we're talking education, like there's nothing monolithic about who we are. And because that there's nothing monolithic, we do have to allow room for flex. And by that, you know what I'm saying is like we have to allow room for flexibility within ourselves to edit maybe some of our perception or to edit some of our, you know, ideologies. Yes, I'm not saying to like abandon who you are at the core, but also understand that we all, if we are going to, you know, walk in this kind of manifestation of, you know, what would Jesus do? I think that Jesus, you know, would be someone that would consistently edit himself. And by that meaning like, yes, this is the core of who I am, but also, yes, I understand that humanity evolves, right? Um, Jesus spent a lot of time, according to the Bible, with some of the most uh, ostracized people of humanity, right? Mm -hmm. And in order for him to do that, he had to, he had to do that with a level of kind of like, grace and flexibility in his in his mind and in his personhood right and so yeah you know just kind of just kind of tying it up to say like i understand where a certain level of rigidness was necessary for our our american survival for a long time mm -hmm. um and i also understand where it is important for us to be who we are at the core as individuals but i also believe that there's always room for, for editing our perspective, um, the way we move in the world and how we treat other people. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of, or at least that's, that's kind of how I'm out here living. So, you know. All right. Yeah. Well, I, I certainly appreciate your perspective and everything that you have talked about today. I thank you so much for your time. Yeah. And uh, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to do this again because I feel like we have a whole another hour we could. Yeah, this is good. This is good. Thank you, Candice. Uh, yeah, we, we we can definitely cycle back on it. All right. Thank you. You have a good day. All right. You too.